Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Sam Williams on the topic of pastor and missionary resilience. Dr. Williams serves as both a professor of counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and as a biblical counselor with over 40 years of experience in the field of counseling and psychology. Dr. Williams will also be with us in another episode to discuss his ideas on the sufficiency of Scripture as it relates particularly to the field of counseling. So be sure to check out that episode as well. Dr. Williams, thank you for being with us today. It's good to be here. Very good. It's good to be with you, Ken. Uh, So we're going to talk about uh, resilience in the ministry, particularly pastor resilience, missionary resilience. So before we begin, can you give our listeners a definition of what you mean by resilience in the light of counseling or ministry? Sure. Yeah, just quite simply and and kind of more colloquially, we'll start there. It's the capacity to, to bend and not break, the capacity to bounce back in the face of adversity, stress, or even trauma. So it's just that human capacity to adapt to the changing and sometimes very difficult conditions of life. So I take it that in your field, what you do uh, and what you study are ways in which resilience can be formed? Sure, yeah. Uh, And as it is with many human and personality traits, you know, there's there's probably a temperamental biogenetic component where we are born and predisposed with certain strengths and weaknesses, and there are probably some that fund uh, better resilience. And at the same time, resilience is also a skill that we develop and learn and we can build. So it's not unlike language. We're born with the capacity for it, but uh, you, the more you practice, the better you get at it. Yeah, but some people have a little more capacity and uh, maybe psychologically, biogenetically wired for a little more resilience than others. But the good news is that everybody can improve and get better at their capacity to weather adversity. So when you say bend but not break, and you say weather adversity, resilience in what ways? Are we talking about sure. depression? Are we talking about opposition? What would be some examples of uh, scenarios in which resilience is so important? Yeah. Well, it's under, uh, you know, my uh, four-year-old granddaughter said the other day, she said, Pop, life is hard. I said, well, Savannah, how did you learn that? She said, well, I just figured it out. She's already four, and she's figured out life is hard. And, and that's it's true, and sometimes much truer than others. I, I think particularly with the vocations we're talking about today, pastors, uh, a, a nearly impossible uh, variety of job skills are required for most pastors. The smaller the church, more the, the more true that is. And uh, in missionary, with all the cross, cross-cultural stressors, leaving families, going to a place where you don't speak the language, you know, not really having your own church to support you, 
they're 1,500, 2,000 miles away. So I think particularly in some vocations and pastors and missionaries are at the upper end of job-related stress, vocational stress. So particularly for them, uh, learning how do I weather the adversity that's, that's, that's intrinsic to this God-called vocation that I'm in. Yeah, and so some of the some of these stressors that a missionary or a pastor or a minister might experience may be difficulties that they're having personally, in like you said, adapting, acclimating to a new culture, or weathering uh, certain difficult situations in which there is perhaps disgruntled church members, things mm-hmm, of that nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then there's also the the stressors that come from being compassionate and empathetic to the needs of others. Sure. That's so right. can you talk to us about how burnout can take compassion fatigue yeah, uh, and yeah, how it affects yeah, burnout? Yeah. Well, and compassion fatigue is one aspect of burnout. And uh, burnout is a gradually developed syndrome. It usually develops over time. It's not, it's not acute in its onset, but much more gradual and typically comprises three dimensions of symptoms or signs. So there, you see something going on emotionally and largely emotional fatigue, that the person just feels emotionally drained, spent. For some people that will look more like depression, for some people that looks more like anxiety and worry, and for others it can look more like irritability and anger and this is where our unique personalities and biogenetics come into play in terms of what burnout looks like, especially in that emotional dimension. But it's a, it's a, it's a kind of emotional fatigue, emotional malaise. And it feels terrible. It feels absolutely terrible. Um, so, second, uh, so let me interrupt you just sure. there, just on that first one. So what would say this is something beyond just like uh, any person working in an office? They'd say, say this is just a bad day at work. Or this goes beyond what a parent would say, yes, well, this is just what it's like to raise children. There's, what, what day do I not feel mm-hmm, drained mm-hmm. or uh, right, fatigued or right, irritable? Right. You're talking about something that takes, I mean, I realize we're talking about a difference in de- degree rather than a difference right, in kind. Right. But what would but, say? But it's, it's chronic and not episodic. It's there almost every day. Once you've arrived at a state of burnout, it doesn't go away unless you've developed a plan for recovery. So uh, I'm thinking back during the time, uh, back in 2005, I was in New Orleans. We went through Katrina. Our home was flooded. I am a person who's been evidently blessed with a lot of endorphins. I am a pretty happy guy. I mean, my natural state is to be in a pretty good mood. But during that period of time, that, that nine-month period, I would wake up sad. Uh, sure. You know, sure. when I would wake up, I would, I would, I would think. Right. And, and was it there more days than not? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just remarkable. Relatively I just had chronic. never experienced this yeah, before yeah. in my life. And, and so, so that for you was your particular version of at least some of the initial stages of burnout in that this was atypical for you? Um, and uh, But you do, every person is going to manifest a different kind of emotional malaise, a different kind of emotional fatigue. 
but it's going to be present. The second area that we see changes is relational. And so that that person ends up feeling relationally more isolated, more lonely, um, more detached, uh, sometimes cynical, jaded, skeptical, grumpy, don't feel good about anything or anybody. So there's a relational component where, once again, typically the person um, is just detached, disconnected, isolated from others, cynical, skeptical. So there's a, a kind of relational disillusionment and I can't that Im- sets in. I cannot imagine the relationships uh, with other humans not also affecting our spiritual relations. Uh, I would ex- I would expect sure, that you're talking sure, about something sure. that... Sure, yeah. Often often that person's relationship, not just with others, but also with God, and then also with himself, is disrupted by this um, gradually ins- gradual and insidious state of burnout that can set in. The third area that we see changes is vocational. So emotional malaise, um, relational disconnectedness, cynicism, um, and then third, uh, vo- a sense of vocational incompetence, a sense that I'm not any good at this anymore, I'm not effective. Now, sometimes that may just be perception. Sometimes that may be true. Mm-hmm. It may be that that person is only feeling like they're ineffective. They may still be preaching and pastoring as well as ever, at least on the outside for the time being, um, but they just feel ineffective. And then sometimes a person can either be, as a result of the state of burnout itself, compromised in their skills and capacities. They're just, they really aren't hitting all, all cylinders anymore. Or perhaps there is an incongruence between their job responsibilities and their actual skill set. And that may also have been a part of the burnout. Uh, and this is where the match between a, a pastor and his church, there must be a kind of congruence there, such that the pastor's skills are really what that church is looking for and believes that they need most. And then there's a kind of congruence, there's a kind of satisfaction with this guy. This guy's doing the job we hired him to do. Um, Sometimes these are called identity demands, and uh, sometimes churches uh, have can have uh, very unrealistic identity demands for their pastors would make it very difficult for them to match up with that. Most pastors are going to try on the front end, but over time they begin to realize, I, I, I can't live up to this. This is not who I am, who I am. And so these identity demands or the incongruence between what the church is looking for and what the pastor is reasonably capable of delivering, where that gap is wide, then that's a setup for not just for the frustration of the church members, but but also for the burnout of the pastor. Yeah, I I have uh, served as an interim pastor in uh, a lot of churches over the last 20 years of various sizes, from less than 100 to uh, over 1,000. And I don't know if I've ever met a single church member who would who would, uh, who would say, my hope is, my, my ambition is, is to be a grief to my pastor. And I don't, uh, you know, I think that we could safely say that most churches want to be a congregation in which their minister can thrive and be fruitful. Yet, there, I think that uh, one can also look at some of the churches 
and just look at how the amount of turnover they have over a 10-year period and see that maybe there's a problem here. What would be some of the, the things for a church or a congregation to watch out for and say, okay, here are the signs of burnout? Are elders in a church saying, okay, here, here are signs that we should be watching for to see if our staff, if our, if our preaching, teaching pastor is, is struggling? Uh, what would you recommend? Sure. Well, I, I, I think this really does start with the leaders of the church caring enough for their pastor, for the other uh, if there are other pastors, associate pastors, for the elders and leaders in the church, caring a, a, a caring congregation, a context of care, concern, compassion, mercy, um, is I think critical, and that's a general ambiance that you find in some churches, and I'm, on some churches, very little of that, where it's it's high demand and very little mercy, which doesn't really make much sense for a Christian church if we really think about it much. But I, I think that this is where a church culture is either going to develop in such a way that health of one another, the uh, degree of openness and honesty that we have in our relationships with one another, um, our care and concern, not just for our performance, but for our souls. Um, and so I think this is very much something that um, is embedded in or can be developed in church cultures. Um, another way that uh, churches can um, take good care of their leaders is to uh, have uh, an EAP uh, or an insurance plan where they can get counseling whenever they need it and want it and make sure that they know that's available to them. Um, another way that churches can stay on top of this is to provide for their pastors sabbaticals, periods of rest. So for instance, at my church, we have a three-month sabbatical available to our pastors uh, after every fifth year. So every five years, every fifth year, they can take three months off. Paid, they have to submit a plan. It has to be intentional with a plan for, uh, for, for, for restoration and recreation and also something that they would be doing that would be of, of benefit to the church. So it's a, a kind of a give and take uh, situation between the, the church. It's good for the church uh, because he get, he's getting some, some restoration and recreation and some refreshment. Uh, and it's also uh, good for the, the church in the sense that maybe he goes on and mis- visits some of the missionaries. Maybe he goes to some conferences. Maybe he visits some other churches. So there's a, 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 a kind of an interchange there so that these sabbaticals are helpful for the pastor, that's really our primary concern, but also for the church as well. Um, uh, also, I think it's very helpful. Another thing we do in our church, if I could brag about it, is we provide study weeks. Each of our pastors have two study weeks per year where it's not vacation, but instead they can go away and say they, they develop, develop a plan, uh, talk with uh, the elders or our lead pastor about their plan and what they're going to study, what they're going to work on. Um, so I think there are a variety of ways, sabbaticals, uh, counseling available, uh, a culture of compassion, concern, care, openness, honesty, genuineness. Um, all of these things can be really helpful for a pastor. I think one of the hardest things that I see in pastors and missionaries, you know, a pastor may lead a church, but he might not have a church. I 
look back in my life and see how many times my church was critical for me or for my family. Absolutely critical if I did not have the body of Christ. I'm so grateful for my pastors in my church. And often I look at some pastors and think, you know, you lead a church, but you don't have a church. There is no church for you, and I'm, that's, it, it, it grieves me. Yeah, you, you and I both are members of North Wake Church, and one of the things I do appreciate about North Wake is its sensitivity and proactive way that it approaches the, 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 the well-being of our pastors and staff, and I, I, th- I think that you're, you're, you're on to something. For a lot of pastors, though, uh, you mentioned being honest. You talked about uh, having uh, insurance that would cover counseling. For a lot of pastors, they, they hesitate to seek help through counseling. Yeah. Uh, you know, why do you think this is true? Is well, it a stigma? I, I, I think that uh, there is just generally in our culture a little bit of stigma uh, against therapy and counseling and, you know, mental health issues. Um, that's probably even a little greater um, among conservative evangelical churches, although I really think that's shifting over the last 20, 30 years. I think there's a shift here. But, you know, um, perhaps we, we carry a little bit of the uh, old um, sacerdotalism, and we believe that the, the pastor, the, the, we don't call them priests, the guy up front is supposed to be holier, holier stronger, purer, and more invincible than anybody else. I think um, that that's a, a part of the stigma. Um, I'm supposed to be caring for people, not receiving care. But on the other hand, uh, pastors that care well for their people, actually many of them that do it very well, have learned that I need care also. And that capacity that they have to be honest about their own needs uh, really helps them to help other people because it, I'm, I'm one person in need providing help for others that are in need. But I think that we still have this kind of uh, sense of the pastor being uh, above everybody else and not, not, not fully human. Yeah, I, uh, you, know, you and I are pretty close to the same age, and we grew up at a time in which uh, it was uh, emphasized repeatedly in college and seminary to uh, young ministers that, and quite correctly, that we minister and preach with our lives uh, in addition to the words we say from the pulpit. So therefore, there was the, the requirement that I model with my life the gospel, everything about it, which was, as a young man, I interpreted that means I have to have my act together in every area, which is such a, a, a demand and expectation that the, the flaws, as, as much as I didn't want them to be there, they had this uh, really nasty habit of rearing their heads, whether it was problems with temper, problems with work, ethic or whatever it could be that would yeah, be yeah. and and yeah. and and then then um, one one then dealt with the uh, uh, not only not only am I not performing what I ought to be it's because I am a uh, I am just a failure right as right, a Christian right right and, and some of that comes against this backdrop that somehow I have to be a spiritual 
superhero, maybe only one notch below Christ himself. Well, if in, and we were, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll, you'll manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not long-suffering, if you're not full of love, yeah, and, yeah. and let me just tell you, as somebody who has been a pastor for decades, there were a few deacons that were, were difficult to love. <laughs> uh, and so, so, you know, that, that whole struggle, yeah, um, yeah, being yeah. able to be real, you know, I want to practice yeah. at being Christ-like without pretending yeah. and yeah. being able to do that, the, the, the pretending, uh, that is just a prescription for burnout. You and I are Southern Baptists. We're, we're, we are, um, our church, we belong to a Baptist church. Are there many statistics about resilience and burnout among Southern Baptist missionaries and pastors? Or is this an area that needs some work? You know, there really is a dearth of uh, data here. Uh, we really, uh, I, I do believe that Lifeway has done a couple of small surveys of pastors and stress and burnout, but that's not been very systematic. It's not been very uh, comprehensive in terms of, uh, you know, uh, large samples, large numbers. Um, so we really don't have much within the SBC. And generally speaking, the data on pastoral health, clergy health, is really just in its early iterations in terms of collection. Um, are, are there the, any, the good there, news, any groups or denominations yeah, yeah. that are doing it right? So the Duke Clergy Project, the Duke Clergy Health Project, um, has done a good job with the United Methodist pastors in collecting data. And so they have done some research. They have some data sets that seem to be at least characterizing that particular denomination, those, those clergy. And then um, the guy named researcher at Notre Dame named Matt Bloom. And Matt Bloom has uh, developed a project called Flourishing in Ministry and uh, has a, a recent book also entitled the same, Flourishing in Ministry. Um, done with Notre Dame, and that was ecumenical with a variety of different denominations included, um, but still not real comprehensive. It's really just in the early stages in terms of uh, you know, testing some of their initial hypotheses and getting some initial data in. Um, hopefully, someday, maybe uh, even out of Southeastern here, we can develop some projects where we can take a more comprehensive and closer look at how our pastors are doing. But, you know, I, I want to go back to one thing that you said that I, I just really remembered that I wanted to reiterate, which is that a, a strong, positive relationship between the pastor and the congregation is among the most important determinants of well-being and flourishing in the pastor. And when it comes to factors that shape pastoral health, pastoral flourishing, when it comes to factors that shape that, that relationship within the, between the pastor and the church is the most important, even outweighing his relationship with his family. Wow, that is something. So the, the pastor-church relationship is probably something that um, we need to pay a whole lot more attention to. And you know, churches who have a good relationship with their pastor and vice versa, they can tell you this. It's a win-win. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, everything is not wonderful all the time, but it's generally healthy. And when problems come up, they can work through them. So a healthy church and this healthy relationship with the pastor and church doesn't mean there are no problems. It doesn't mean there are no conflicts. It just means that when they come up, 
We can face them. We can talk about them. We can be relatively Christian in how we resolve this, and we can get on the other side of it. So um, as we close out, what, what resources might you recommend or point the listener to? Sure. Um, well, let me uh, end with just some basic points of self-care for pastors. Many of these would also apply for missionaries. And these are a product of Matt Bloom's research over at Notre Dame, the Flourishing and Ministry Project. So first is that the pastor needs to have a daily period of detachment and relaxation, the project called it. In other words, where they can sit down, decompress, breathe deeply, relax, take the work mantle off and kick up their shoes and let their hair down and and just decompress. So that that really needs to be daily, that he sits down, takes everything off of his plate, and just you know breathe deeply. And um, second component that is really helpful for pastors and missionaries is to have what's called a restorative niche. Basically, this is a hobby, something that you can get into, something that you're naturally good at, something that inspires you something that you enjoy so for some guys there this are is fishing. pastors who are golfers yeah who are loving for, what you're just saying that's right for some it's golfing for some it's fishing for some it's gardening for some it's biking um, for some it's chess uh, so but are, these restorative niches are needed two or three times a month where you can really kind of get away and have a little more of an extended time a third is a spiritual practice that is daily, okay? Especially the more contemplative, meditative types of spiritual practices are helpful. And if those are practiced, even five minutes a day makes a big difference in mm. some of the research. But if a pastor can get up to 20, 25, or 30, so five to 30 minutes of contemplative, meditative, spiritual practice is extremely helpful. Of course, we can see we have lots of research on meditation and mindfulness um, and how beneficial that is for both medical and mental health. Mm. And so this taps into, this is, this is our way of making eye contact with God, of sensing his presence. But on a daily, at least five minutes, but up to 30 minutes a day. Fourth, that pastor's relationships, he needs to be conscious of cultivating healthy relationships uh, with his church, and if that's not happening, then that issue needs to be addressed. If that's not happening, if there's a big problem between the pastor and the church, that really needs to be fixed. Otherwise, this pastor is going to suffer. We have been listening to Dr. Sam Williams. Uh, that's very helpful advice, Dr. Williams, uh, those four points. Um, I appreciate you sharing them with us. Uh, this is the Christ and Culture Podcast. I'm Ken Keithley, and hoping that you have a good day.